how great is that fear of a company landing into your anti portfolio as long as your portfolio performs well i don't think there is as much of a fear of missing out interaction between a founder and a vc uh, it, it's more of a process than a transaction yeah um, yeah just because it's a no once uh, doesn't mean it can't happen again and same way if a round got closed by a founder and a vc wanted to invest and there's no allocation doesn't mean there won't be an allocation in the next round hello and welcome to the 16th episode of startup garage this is your host webhav gogia and our guest for today is anurag ramdasan anurag heads the investments team at 314 capital an early stage venture capital fund which manages a corpus of about 110 million dollars and a portfolio of close to 50 investments uh, some famous ones include licious davenbox pocket aces your story and traction at 314 anurag works extensively on the investment side managing evaluation of new startups performing diligence on them and he also spends a lot of his time working with the portfolio companies their founding teams across tech product business strategy and fundraising so welcome to the show anurag i'm really glad to have you here how are you hey babu thank you for having me i'm great how about you how are you doing all good man everything's going good so anurag worked as a founding member of uh, of a lot of startups uh and now that you're here you're heading the investments team and you're investing into particular specific sectors like d2c fintech deep tech uh so how 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 did you develop this investment thesis and and how hard is your focus on these particular sectors so look i mean uh, one of the things we've tried to do from the very beginning um has been to be a little more on the sector agnostic side uh try to look as diverse as possible but obviously over a period of time we have seen that there has been some good allocation in some sectors and that's just uh performed well for us overall right so for example if you look at fintech all of our companies have been very highly successful in fintech um so some of it was a very focused approach and some of it was just natural uh, evolution i think one thing we realized was that uh, when we started off early stage was still um you know uh, evolving and maturing a bit so we, we we realized that if you in the early stage if you end up picking one specific sector at least we were not able to make a case for a lot of depth in that sector yeah. so we decided to go multi sector uh, and a bit diverse in terms of stage also mm-hmm. so that's how that's how we ended up um, starting off obviously you know um, as it happens when you make an investment you um, keep refining your focus and your thesis in that particular sector and you obviously get better so that is where sectoral uh, expertise emerges and you realize that some sector clearly is performing better for you over the other but 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 to a great extent we try to be sector agnostic as much as possible right 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 so is does that does that stem from the fact that uh, having a particular sector focus for vcs uh does that stand somewhere against diversification in a vc or is it the fear of missing out on certain sectors which are growing too rapidly so how how do you think sector focus actually helps some vcs or is it is it a bad thing um no actually you know um just like startups a lot in vc also depends on execution right um so there is always a 
pro and con case to be made for most of these things. Yeah. So just because you focus on one sector doesn't mean it goes against diversification. So for example, mm-hmm. if you think about um, consumer brands, right? Uh, of course, clothing, FMCG, mobility, all of these fall under consumer brands, but they're still very, very diversified, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's there's always ways to explore diversification that way, even within a sector. Um, and I think uh, um, to be to be very fair, it's it's really difficult, uh, near impossible to say that one approach is better than the other. What you have mm-hmm. to do is figure out an approach and a playbook. Uh, that works well to your strengths and stick to it. So one thing we identified was our our strength was um, a good focus on technology and scaling up technology, right? That's that's how we looked at it. So we've okay. we've done very little sort of offline brands kind of a play. Everything okay. that we've done has a technology component, and yep. we decided technology will be the core focus, and we can go as much horizontal as we want in that. Right. Yep, so, yep. so that's how our thesis evolved. What we wanted to do was stick to technology, and there, are, there have been a lot of sort of offline brands play that we've said no to from time to time. Where, you know, you could, you could uh, yeah. very well ask the question that are we missing out on something, right? But it's important <laughs> to play to your case. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's and true. that's that's what's worked well for us, right? So, yeah. so it's it's not. Uh, and look, it's in in India in early stage. There is still that. Uh, lack of depth right i mean if you just mm-hmm. pick fintech there is there is only so much available in fintech if you just pick yeah. um, health there is only so much and we do eight to ten investments every year mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. A, a, from that playbook standpoint uh, going broad made more sense um, okay. um, a, it was also from a technology standpoint also it became easier to diversify okay okay that that makes a lot of sense and so do you like you said uh, i mean there's always that uh, thing of uh, missing out on on certain sectors mm-hmm. which which might be growing too fast because during this crisis we have seen certain sectors uh, being advanced i mean taking out the advantage of businesses moving more mm-hmm. online transactions moving online fintech is in fact one of them right and mm-hmm. uh, so while while you're evaluating a deal I mean, how great is that fear of a company landing into your anti-portfolio? I think, you know, uh, um, it's it's a bit uh, <laughs> exaggerated the effect of that, to be very okay. honest. Okay. Uh, what what I've realized is, see, if, if every company in your port- portfolio is successful, yeah. then you don't have to care about anti-portfolio because you've <laughs> done everything right. Yeah. right? Uh, I mean, if, if, if your portfolio isn't performing well, and every bit of your anti-portfolio is performing well, then that is real cause for concern. Yeah. Um, so we'd, we'd rather focus on having our portfolio companies be more successful than worry about yeah. others. See, of course, you know, sometimes we say no to a company where we think there is a lot of potential for whatever yeah. reason, right? Maybe uh, it's too early a stage. Maybe it's some other proof points that we want to see established. In which case, we obviously track, but... Um, I don't think we go too hard on applying a lens of what if we say no and this becomes successful because mm-hmm. it's it's hard to consider that as an investment metric, right? Yeah. Uh, you can you can use user growth as an investment metric or revenue growth as an investment metric and evaluate, but when you put what if this company becomes successful as an investment metric, then every company could hypothetically fit that checkbox. Every That's company true. could hypothetically become successful, right? right, um, right, right it's right. like, what all would you 
end up investing in if you think like that so so you know as long as your portfolio performs well i don't think there is as much of a fear of missing out okay um and and that's that's sort of the approach that we've taken that that makes a lot of sense so uh, like you said there are certain companies that that uh, i mean that just do not make the cut right i mean they mm-hmm. they miss out on some one factor that is important to you and mm-hmm. so do you do you monitor a company once you decide not to invest in it i mean there would be some companies that uh, that you would be monitoring on one particular metric once they achieve that then you are probably ready to invest so does does that happen oh of course of course it it, it actually happens all the time right i mean see mm-hmm. the the thing is and uh, almost all the good founders in the ecosystem understand that also that uh, interaction between a founder and a vc uh, it, it's more of a process than a transaction yeah um, yeah just because it's a no once uh, doesn't mean it can't happen again and same way if a round got closed by a founder and a vc wanted to invest and there's no allocation doesn't mean there won't be an allocation in the next round right that's so from right. both sides that's that's it's a it's a process right and it's it's about just maintaining a relationship and seeing if you can do a deal uh, later down the road right yeah, yeah. so so from that standpoint uh, i mean we constantly interact with a lot of founders in some cases the founders just keep sending us updates in some cases the founders reach out saying hey we, we wanted to get a con- connect to this particular company and we know you are in touch with them can you make the connect right we are happy to do that this nothing to lose um, so that way we do stay in touch we so sometimes once a quarter we interact with some of these companies also so uh, that's a that's a very very normal thing to happen okay 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 and you also spend a lot of time in evaluating new startups right and uh, in fact yeah. i was i was reading about it and you have interacted with more than 3000 founders which is which is a huge number right and so is there sort of the first binary checklist you have when you're picking the founders is there is there the first interaction checklist which you which you feel is sort of a binary thing where how the founder reaches out to you or how the founder is in terms of uh, their conviction is there is there something of that sort i mean um, look there are there are some things right but I, i wouldn't say any of these are like set in stone right okay. so for example if someone you know you worked with you trust refers a founder to you you would obviously take them more seriously Mm-hmm. right but but that doesn't mean you blindly discard every company that tries to write directly to you either yeah of course yeah. you know it's it's like it's a signaling thing you assign a certain higher score to some people right in terms of founders themselves i think what we realized is um, um there is nothing else that can substitute a founder's conviction and domain expertise uh, no matter how good a board you have unless you know the founders are not a uh, high conviction it never works out right so we we yeah. rely on founders sort of leading the way for us we are, we are happy to help but the founders lead the way and that's that's where we've seen the best outcomes happen whenever we've seen yeah investors or boards get too involved it's it's already probably too late to sell <laughs> um and uh, that's 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 how we've looked at things i mean as long as the founders know the direction to go in we are <laughs> and we have enough faith in the founder we are just happy to take a back seat mm-hmm. and let them run with it and you know mm-hmm. if you if you look at most portfolios for most vcs that is where the 
Yeah. That is where the best and the most outsized outcomes come. Right, right, right. So, I mean, one question that obviously comes to my mind is now when we are talking about picking the right founder. Um, so mm-hmm. to say, there are there are some sectors which require an expertise to enter, right? I mean, uh, mm-hmm. deep deep tech startups talking about uh, uh, one the, one of the sectors that you heavily invest in. So deep tech founders need to have some sort of sectoral expertise. Uh, and and so and so do you prefer founders who have that sort of expertise or do you also look at founders which which have a higher capacity to to learn faster or higher curiosity mm-hmm. or are generally just smarter and faster so what do you essentially look at when you're considering deep tech i think i think you know it's it's not as much about expertise okay. as it is about insights okay right um you could be working in a domain for 40 years but if you have nothing new to add you'll not become a successful founder right um, and that insight could ha- happen 10 years into the industry 30, 30 years into the industry okay. right but it's the insight that really matters like how are you going to do something differently um, and um, you know depending on the sector the the time at which insights come in are different. So for example, if it's a very, very deep tech sector, of course it takes years if not decades to build up those kind of insights, right? But then there are other sectors like maybe social platforms or stuff like that where mm-hmm. it's it's not necessarily that you have to work for 20 years at Facebook to develop some insight about yeah. social platforms, yeah, right? That's, true. Yeah. Um, that's more of an intellectual exercise. But it's 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 an insight that we try to chase, not necessarily expertise. Okay. Uh, it's like, um, uh, you know, uh, someone joked, you could work somewhere at uh, 10 years and you will have one year's experience repeated 10 times over. But that doesn't make much sense. Right. Um, so, so if the founder comes with a certain insight into a domain that we've not thought of and we were like blown away because of it, then that that's a you know bigger deal for us than a CV which says you worked in this industry mm-hmm. for twenty five years. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And so, uh, I mean, founder is is one part of the story, and then I think mm-hmm. in early stages. Uh, there are two or three things primarily that uh, VCs look at because there are there are no numbers, right? Uh, so founder is one. How big the market is another. So when you're considering when you're considering a deep tech startup or a media tech startup for that for that matter, uh, mm-hmm. what what exactly do you think? How exactly uh, does your thought process work around? So a startup approaches you. Uh, what is what is the typical uh, I mean thought process like when you when you hear about a new idea? How does a VC's mind work when they hear a new idea? <laughs> okay, that's a that's a very interesting and a very tough question to answer. First of all, I think uh, what sets apart VCs is you know from each other is the process that they develop for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, so at best, I can tell you how I think. Uh, I don't sure, know sure, if uh, uh, I, I'm someone who should be the spokesperson for all VCs. Um, but but look, I mean, uh, it's a it's the alignment of a few things, right? I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, like I mentioned, if there is a problem, what is your unique insight into solving that problem? Yeah. Right. Because um, 
because see, they, they, there is the idea aspect and then there is the execution aspect on top of it. Yep. Yep. Why, why does this team look like someone who can pull that off? Right? Yep. Uh, why can't, what happens if I take this idea and give it to someone else? Would they also be able to pull it off? In which case, what's the defensibility? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's one. The second thing is, even if you pull it off and you solve this problem, how, how big does the solution get, right? How big is mm-hmm. the market here? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's the second thing. The third thing is the 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 switching cost, right? I mean, it's it. There is always inbuilt inertia into any new behavior. So, how easily can a switch like this happen, right? What do you have to do to incentivize a switch like this? Um, so, okay. in in some cases, the switch is very natural. In some cases, maybe like when we saw with uh, many companies in the ecosystem where uh, cashbacks or discounts or similar incentives were provided, right? Nothing wrong with that, but then you have to understand it's an expensive game, and is yeah. is this space, is this segment something where you want to back an expensive game like that? Right, right. right. And uh, and the last thing is how much money do you make doing all of these things? <laughs> so yeah. in the first call, you uh, just make a mental model of these things, right? Apply these filters in the first call. Try to understand. Uh, if if when looking at looking through these filters and the, these lenses mm-hmm. at a high level, does this problem statement does this space make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And if it makes sense, then you start really diving deep into it. When you uh, then you really start uh, exploring whether this is a company I want to do. Yeah. To what extent do I want to back this? How many rounds would I invest? Those kind of future problems come into play. But but first call, maybe first half an hour, first one hour, these are the high level things that you are trying to understand yeah. and solve for. Right, right, right. And so, uh, I mean, I understand that you, you look at all these things and then you make some decisions. I mean, I'm, I'm sure decisions are, are not uh, black and white for you to make. There's a lot mm-hmm. of gray area. And so, mm-hmm. especially post the coronavirus crisis, I mean, uh, business models have have gone through a huge transformation, and in fact, I was I was reading somewhere some someone somewhere said that there are changes that ha- that take decades to happen, and then there are phases where decades of change happens. So, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, and and we have seen certain sectors grow really fast, certain sectors being left behind. Mm-hmm. So, especially mm-hmm. talking talking from the perspective of startup evaluation, uh, from the point of view of investment, uh, how do you think? Uh, that criteria of selection of a startup will change or has changed post this crisis? Uh, I mean, what additional do you now look for in a founder or in a business model? See, uh, I think there are a, a couple of things, right? I mean, for, first of all, from a starting point, how much can you plan for? I mean, you can obviously, as a founder, always plan for another COVID. Right. But the next thing that hits you will not be COVID. It will be something entirely different. <laughs> yeah. Right? So if you're planning for COVID post COVID, it's it's probably pointless. <laughs> right. So you you can't apply that kind of a lens. What you can do is maybe understand um, you know what shifts happen in the market, what mm-hmm. new behaviors emerge, and how do you look at things from that window. So for example, very recently there was an announcement of a of an investment in a company called Airmeet, which was a very interesting investment. I mean, they are doing events online, right? Um, That is a potential shifting trend due to COVID. Whether it's a permanent shift or not, uh, hard to say. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, we can only say that in hindsight, but mm-hmm. definitely a worth, or definitely a bet worth taking, right? Because yeah. you are banking on some kind of shift in behavior happening. Yeah, um, that's true. So there are new models that you would look at through that lens. Obviously, you know, there will be a rush towards uh, perhaps education or content yeah. platforms because of the China app bans and things like things mm-hmm. like that, right? Mm-hmm. Which is also something that's very much worth looking at. But uh, at the same time, uh, how much do you sort of blame an existing business model for COVID, right? So uh, offline brands had to shut down their stores during COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that make offline brands a fundamentally bad model to back? Obviously not. Yeah, right? that's true. They yeah. may have to, they may just have to figure out ways to yeah. manage their uh, cash flows better in the future, have better reserves, structure themselves differently. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean like the restaurant business is going away anytime soon. Right? We'll st- we yeah. still have to eat. Right? So it's it's more of a recalibration in terms of where where you see the path forward and how you look at existing businesses rather than just flat out saying, oh, consumer companies had to shut down in between, so they'll never do consumer again. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. that's a very, you know, uh, short-term way of yeah, looking it's at a, things, it's right? a I mean, yeah. Exactly. See, I mean, uh, I, I'm sure, you know, um, all the Adidas and Nike stores shut down during COVID. Yeah. Does that mean Adidas and Nike would shut down? No. Does that mean obviously, you'll stop yeah. wearing shoes? Obviously not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So obviously there are ways to be done. Clearly they would have to be done differently. And you keep right. an eye out for how people are doing things differently rather than saying, okay, this sector won't work or yeah. this sector will work better. Right. It's a shift. Right. It's a behavior shift. And you have to find founders who can, who have some thesis of how to adapt to it. Right. 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 I mean that, that sort of nimbleness within the founder is required for sure. Right. And also, course, um, yeah. also, do you think, do you think there's some sort of uh, overemphasis on certain sectors due to COVID? Like you said, edutech is, is going big time. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. education is now shifting online, right? I mean, all the big institutes are shifting their models to an online education. And there are huge bets that are taken on uh, the education sector, the education tech sector. Uh, similarly, D2C brands are coming up. There is localization of e-commerce that is happening. People are going to prefer local cleaner brands. Uh, people are going to prefer hygienic brands, which they know are, uh, are have, have some sort of proximity to them. So do you think any of these sectors are, are sort of exaggerated or is sort of a time ticking bubble? Uh, that is only caused due to some sort of um, uh, push towards more behavior change that we see in in the customer. So, so look, I think you know it is a it is a combination of things, right? It is a combination of how the sector is performing, how companies in the sector is performing, and oh, whatever the media chooses to report. So you see, uh, so you end up reading things yeah. and paper, which may not be 100% the truth, right? So for example, let's say um, education has seen a, like, I'm just throwing hypothetical numbers, okay? But let's say education has seen a 2x growth in COVID, okay? okay? Now, everyone's excited about education, but, um, you know, obviously that 2x won't be sustainable. It will come down, right? Absolutely, Um, But... Uh, would it come down to normal level or is there a baseline shift? Let's say it comes down from 2x to 1.3x. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
now in a country of a billion people where maybe 4 to 500 million people will be educated in some form of the other mm-hmm. um, either either you know curriculum extra curricular or reskilling at enterprise level yes. right um the 500 million people could potentially get educated mm-hmm. a baseline growth of 30% is still a very big deal okay yeah right going yeah, going true. from uh, 1 to 1.3x makes a lot of difference yeah. and Yeah. in which case it is really really sensible for investors to chase that right okay. Okay. but obviously if if you're just looking at short term headlines saying mm-hmm. these three companies got funded mm-hmm. uh, you have to understand the investors are thinking of a 10 year um, window not of a let's invest in the next two months kind of a thing right so there is there is always a bit of disconnect in what happens in the investment world versus what gets reported <laughs> in the media the media and you always have to sort of and <laughs> just against that to a certain extent but but that way i think uh, some of the tailwinds are justified uh, yeah yeah especially education etc because uh, you know obviously previously you know selling to schools universities was very tough but they're now opening up and hopefully those kind of behaviors are here to stay which means yeah for true. education companies a whole new gtm has opened up and that's yeah. going to make a big dif- difference right so i think those kind of uh, mm-hmm. fundamental systemic changes is mm-hmm. is clearly there how much of a baseline difference it makes we have to wait and see but but i don't think any industry has seen any disproportionate growth whatever whatever mm-hmm. hype we are seeing seems more or less well deserved right 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 and also i mean uh, th- like you said there is a longer term uh, perspective that vcs generally look at and it's obviously something uh, that uh, is sort of under reported in the media <laughs> and mm-hmm. and because of that there are there is obviously there is there is skepticism as to how education will grow post this crisis like you said will it come mm-hmm. down to base levels or will the baseline shift but obviously i i, I mean the the shift to online education had only already been happening even pre covid right i mean uh, mm-hmm. the growth of byju's is a testimony yeah. to that yeah so yeah i mean i mean that's that's I mean, absolutely this has just this has just accelerated the growth more than anything. exactly exactly that's true anurag mm-hmm. so uh, anurag i mean uh, uh, that's that's a really good perspective on a lot of things uh, so mm-hmm. like now just moving to uh, some really quick question so this is this is sort of the uh, sort of a rapid fire that i play impromptu <laughs> with my <laughs> with my guests okay. so so mm-hmm. uh, just very i mean very short questions uh, very very pointed questions at you so what is the one startup sector that is personally of most interest to you so i'm i'm very uh, i mean I, i hate to sound like a broken record here but uh, education definitely is of a huge interest okay. but If I still have to pick a consumer education and consumer okay. facing health, both okay. of these uh, would be something that I would put right up there. I think from a demography standpoint, this makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. If you okay. look at it from just a, a socio-economic standpoint, I think the country is also at a position where it is more than willing to pay directly for these kind of solutions. That's so there true. is that kind of a shift also. So I think health and education will. Mm-hmm. see a um, lot of interest and lot of growth in the next 3 uh, to 5 years um, okay. th- and this is i mean clearly this is like on the tails of growth in um, finance that we've seen um, you know in the last 2 3 years but it's it's a systematic right. way of you know 
one problem being solved after another you solve their financial problems then you solve their educational problems and then health yeah. problems right it's a yeah. it's sort of like a hierarchy of needs of sorts so i think education right. and health direct to consumer would be a very interesting space to uh, look out for in the next yeah. few years yeah. great great sounds sounds good uh, so one book or a blog that uh, you go back to time and again um uh, in terms of books one of my all time favorite books is a book called the power of habit okay I, i think i really enjoyed it was one of the first books which um uh, made me realize that the 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 thought process we have about mm-hmm. our habits like bad habits like old habits never change etc that's basically bullshit and <laughs> you know you yeah. you have enough control on how you intend to scale up your habits so that's yeah definitely one book i often recommend that's true yeah that's really nice so uh, i know like this one's really interesting uh, so mm-hmm. would you rather build something that a few people absolutely love or mm-hmm. build something that a lot of people only like would me personally yeah yeah personally i i i'd rather build a build something that a few people absolutely love okay okay that's yeah. great uh so what is what 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 do you think right now uh, the biggest challenge is for the startup ecosystem as a whole in our country like one one challenge that you feel is still there i mean uh, in terms of uh, not not just in terms of market but in terms of how the whole industry operates in terms of how the whole industry operates okay yeah, yeah. that's a that's a very interesting question um i think you know um there is a bit of a discovery and transparency problem right and this is coming from okay. a founders standpoint there are a lot of founders across the country doing great work um i think falling behind due to two reasons one is lack of access to venture capital and second is lack of access to good startup or founders community i mean like specifically when you look at um tier 2 tier 3 tier 4 cities right yeah. very yeah. very ambitious founders but you know i mean if you are a founder and you are in bangalore you have this very unfair advantage that That's you true. get to be around very very successful other founders who can tell you how to think about your business how to scale and these guys are equally ambitious but they don't have that kind of a uh, network right so yeah. i mean if you think about it like a fresh works or someone kind of built out the chennai ecosystem yeah. we need i think we need more of those kind of ecosystems in more remote uh, not remote but tier 2 3 cities in this country that would really change the game for startups okay okay that that sounds amazing i mean i i i completely agree with you i mean somebody in bangalore can simply just go up to starbucks kormangla and meet so many founders and investors over there so mm-hmm. that's that's you true uh yeah just just one last question rag so uh, a lot of founders have interacted with you a lot of founders do reach out to you a lot they they might be cold emailing you calling you and all that <laughs> things so what is the one one mistake the that that in 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 your uh, eyes founders make a lot that they should definitely not make yeah i think uh, i think we briefly touched upon this uh, before also right i mean uh, an investor mm-hmm. might not make an investment for many reasons right mm-hmm. 
yeah. just the combinations are a lot yeah. that may not necessarily mean that the investor doesn't want to have anything to do with you okay right uh, what i realized is a lot of founders also end up thinking of uh, every investor conversation as highly transactional Mm-hmm. like uh, okay you're not giving me money cool i'm out of here let's not talk <laughs> ever again yeah. i think i think you know and uh, and that's what i've seen the best best founders seem to have great relationships with a lot of vcs and yeah. are able to derive some or the other value out of them at some stage in life right okay. so okay. thinking of uh, and and that's how it works in business also right i mean every potential client you talk to if you um treat them just as transactional and move on your scope is limited you treat them That's as true. valuable relationships and friendships eventually that will somehow come back at help so i think i think that's one thing that mature founders at least do far better than okay. maybe more earlier stage founders okay okay that that that's good actionable advice great mm-hmm. anurag so in the interest of time we will close this session over here uh so thank mm-hmm. you so much for joining me today and taking out the time and uh, it was it was definitely a very insightful conversation i'm sure uh, our audiences would love would love to hear this out it was fun interacting with you man thanks a lot no likewise too thank you for having me and um, uh, you know i hope to see more editions of your podcast with you know much much more interesting people <laughs>